0: your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement the united states is headed for an entitlement crisis social security and medicare are going broke you are going to have to pay the bill you are going to have to pay the bill welcome to the debt dialogues where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis how it affects you and what you can do about it debt here's your host ayn rand institute
1: fellow don watkins My guest today is Daniel J. Mitchell. Dan is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a past guest on this podcast. Dan, welcome back to the Debt Dialogues.
0: Glad to be on the program.
1: So a new report from the OECD, the Organization for uh, Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, came out recently claiming that inequality hurts economic growth and that wealth redistribution policies that they advocate as the solution don't. And this report is beginning getting a lot of attention. I see it creeping up in a lot of places. And uh, you had a really interesting blog post on it, so I thought we could talk a little bit about the claims of the report.
0: Yeah, so, I was actually flabbergasted when I read the study because it's the most content-free uh, bit of analysis you could possibly imagine. Uh, the OECD – is a very left-wing international bureaucracy, and I think they simply had a had an agenda, and that's what they used this study to try to promote.
1: Yeah. So the the report basically makes three major claims. One is that inequality hurts economic growth. Two, it has a causal explanation for why or how inequality hurts growth, and then finally, it, it makes a claim that redistribution. Doesn't hurt growth, and so I want to start with the the first claim. And uh, let me just read a paragraph uh, from the report or a summary of the report. It says: New OECD analysis suggests that income inequality has a negative and statistically significant impact on medium-term growth, rising inequality by three Gini points. That is, the average increase recorded in the OECD over the last two decades would drag down economic growth by 0.35 percentage points per year for 25 years, accumulated loss in GDP at the end of the period of 8.5%. And then it goes on, rising inequality is estimated to have knocked more than 10 percentage points off growth in Mexico and New Zealand, nearly nine points in the United Kingdom, Finland and Norway, and between six and seven points in the United States, Italy and Sweden. On the other hand, greater equality prior to the crisis helped increase GDP per capita in Spain, France, and Ireland. So are you convinced?
0: Well, I find it almost amazing that the OECD would cite Spain, France, and Ireland as economic success stories, Uh, but, but let's set that aside. There's a big issue here, and I don't want to get boring and technical, between correlation and causation if you have an economy that's growing decently, that's going to help people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. Uh, whereas if you have an economy that's stagnant, that's probably going to hurt people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. So, so if you have a, a decently growing economy uh, and you wind up then having some poor people benefit, well, are you going to say that the poor people benefiting cause the economy to grow? No, at least not unless you're willing to say that roosters crowing caused the sun to rise. So so I think the the OECD study, uh, just on the face of it, uh, is is just a little bit preposterous.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, that gives us then into its explanation. So it tries to come up with a reason. How is it that inequality, and I think it's important you you kind of uh, suggested this, that there's a distinction between, say, poverty and inequality. Inequality just is referring to differences, relative differences in how much people make. And they claim that the reason that inequality hurts growth is that, in their words, this is because people from disadvantaged social backgrounds, which they define as 40% of Americans, the 40% uh, lowest incomes, underinvest in their education. And so. I I don't really follow that logic, uh, why differences in income um, would lead to underinvestment in education, but what are they saying and how are they justifying that?
0: Well, I have to confess that I'm a little bit baffled by it as well. Most of the data I've seen on education is that high tax rates discourage people from getting a uh, from getting additional education because why do you supply to people to get additional education to earn more income but if the government punishes you for earning more income why go through the trouble why go to graduate school why why in effect miss out on two years of earnings uh, while well, you're doing it because you're hoping your income will be even higher as a result but if the government's taking a lot of that income away well that's going to change your behavior but in this case we're talking about poor people well why would poor people not care about getting an education and advancing themselves. Uh, the OECD doesn't make any logical, uh, case for, for why this would be. But, but let's even set that aside. If you, if the OECD really cares about helping poor people get a better ed- education, then why aren't they promoting the types of school choice programs that you see? in OECD countries like Chile and the Netherlands and Sweden, uh, where you tend to get better results than the government monopoly system we have in the United States. Uh, So so it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the internals of this OECD study, whether you're looking at the big-picture assumptions, the big-picture findings, nothing in this study makes sense, which is why I come back to my original point. This was an ideological conclusion that was that they came to ahead of time. And then they said, figure out some way to torture the numbers until it gives us this result.
1: Um, Well, maybe you could expand on that a little bit. I don't think people realize when they read these headlines in the newspaper and the blogosphere touting, you know, experts have concluded inequality hurts growth. They don't understand that these are very difficult things to assess and that The assessments inherently involve a lot of judgment calls and, you know, various models. Could you just give people a little bit of sense of what's behind studies like this that have to give us at least pause before we jump and just embrace whatever the alleged conclusions are?
0: Well, two things to understand. Even if you are the most honest and dispassionate academic, you're looking for the genuine scholarly explanation for something – in an economy with tens of millions of people making hundreds of millions of economic decisions, it's very, very challenging to try to model that intelligently and correctly. Uh, you know, even if you try to simplify and say, "Okay, there are 15 major policies uh, that we're going to look at," you know, what's actually driving it? And yes, there are different statistical techniques to try to isolate the effect of one policy uh, uh, instead of another policy. But here's the real problem, and this is where I think uh, the OECD study uh, you know, probably is a shiny example of this. If you want to get a certain result, there's no question, just by looking at different databases, picking in some numbers, uh, cherry picking other numbers, uh, leaving a certain data series out, eventually you can come up with something that proves just about anything. Uh, if, if you go onto, onto some search engine, and you type in spurious correlation, you'll come up with some amazing results uh, that 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 make my example of crowing roosters causing the sun to shine uh, to rise. It'll make that seem like a hard science by comparison. And, and, and so yeah, when we get this OECD study that somehow the entire results are all based on the fact that poor people don't want a better life and so they're not going to get more education just because some rich people have more income, Where's the sense in that? And I do think that they probably went through and tortured the data until they found some sort of spurious correlation to justify the outcome that they came to ahead of time.
1: So, what what would be your general advice then to somebody, let's say, is not an expert and is trying to reach conclusions, uh, big picture conclusions about what helps and what harms an economy?
0: The first thing to do is to view any statistical study with not just a grain of salt, a whole shaker full of salt. Uh, even good, honest, dispassionate academics are going to have a hard time, especially when they're looking at really, really big issues, which is what this OECD study is going after. You want to be very careful. I and mean, if you're doing something like uh, you know, the, the the changes in the price of yak milk in Mongolia uh, and changing consumption patterns of yak milk, well, maybe you could actually do that reasonably, intelligently, reasonably well, because presumably there aren't going to be that many uh, alternative explanations Uh, But big picture, economies, multiple economies all over the world, world, poverty, inequality, growth rates, boy, I mean, as I said, even honest studies are going to have a hard time doing that. And so the number one thing I always recommend to people is just use common sense. Economics, ultimately, is about human action, human behavior, human incentives. And if someone's telling you a story and they don't have any intuitive explanation for why it should make sense, and that's obviously missing in this OECD study, then you need to get very suspicious. If somebody can't explain something to you in a way that's logical, then they probably are selling you a bill of goods.
1: Um, A couple weeks on, we had uh, Scott Winship, who earlier had his own study, uh, showing the opposite, which is that um, there doesn't appear to be evidence that inequality hurts economic growth. And one thing that I liked about Scott's interview is that he was upfront about the challenges of measuring it and how tentative his own conclusions were. And I think it's revealing then that this is kind of plucked out as if this is the first and last word in the issue rather than part of a very contentious disagreement among scholars.
0: And Scott is, uh, deserves a lot of credit for being honest about the challenges that, uh, that scholars face when, when they look at things like this. But, but let me give you, I guess, a, uh, a, a different perspective that I think might help uh, underscore uh, what we're looking at. Let's imagine that we have one country or jurisdiction like, say, Hong Kong, very free market, lots of economic growth, but lots of inequality. Well, there's lots of inequality because some people are getting richer faster than other people are getting richer, but everyone's getting richer. That's presumably a good thing. Now, on the other hand, you could have a country like Nigeria that has lots of inequality, but they have lots of inequality because of cronyism, because the government is so centrally controlled with lots of corruption and special favors. Uh, so so you have two jurisdictions. They both have inequality, but they have inequality for radically different reasons. And the average person obviously is much better off in one jurisdiction, i.e., Hong Kong, because there's strong growth, than in Nigeria where your chances as an ordinary person to get ahead are so thwarted by bad government policy. So, so inequality, it could be a sign of a, of a good, fast-growing economy with opportunity, or it could be a sign of a, of a corrupt, cronyist economy. And, and that's why this OECD study is such nonsense. They don't even try to look at things like that and what implications they might have.
1: So the, the third claim um, was that redistribution – doesn't hurt economic growth and that this is a a key way of fighting inequality. And this is – I found this one particularly interesting. Um, what's their argument for it and how would you address that argument?
0: I, I confess that I'm baffled by that. Uh, because there actually have been OECD studies, not to mention IMF studies, and in other places that you don't normally associate with being pro-market or pro-small government, uh, the, the notion that redistribution doesn't hurt growth is is, is nonsensical because there are two things at work: the people getting the government handouts obviously have less incentive to provide labor to the marketplace, and the people who are financing the redistribution obviously are getting punished. contributing to economic output. And so there's almost no way logically that you can come to the conclusion that redistribution doesn't hurt growth with all the evidence from, you know, again, not all of it, because I'm sure you can have academics who can, you know, come up with stuff like this OECD study, but the real world, I guess that's what what I'll point out, the real world is a case study. It's a laboratory, and the countries that have more redistribution tend to grow slower, they tend to drive out entrepreneurs and businesses. They tend to uh, to reduce labor supply and erode the social ethic and social character of the people. Uh, and, and so this OECD study, I guess if there was a prize for the worst study of 2014, this, this might be it.
1: Um, well, let me throw a counterexample that you've written about in the past uh, just briefly. What about – the Scandinavian countries, which allegedly have—or not—you know—have much higher uh, welfare state programs than, say, the United States does, um, but uh, on the whole show pretty strong economic growth.
0: Well, I wouldn't say they show strong economic growth. They show better economic performance than, say, southern European economies. And the question is why. Well, the the answer is if you look at the Economic Freedom of the World Index from the Fraser Institute uh, or even the Index of Economic Freedom from the Heritage Foundation and Wall Street Journal, you'll see that the Nordic countries are very, very free market, except for having big welfare states. So remember earlier we were talking about all the different variables that you have to look at to try to estimate what's happening in an economy? Well, these indexes from Fraser and Heritage, they try to do that. They look at rule of law and property rights. They look at regulatory policy, monetary policy. They look at fiscal policy. And what they're finding is that, yeah, those countries have bad fiscal policy, but In other areas, they're actually more free market in many cases than the United States. And some of those countries, like uh, like Denmark and Finland, actually rank above the U.S. on comprehensive measures of economic liberty. And uh, now we're better than them, or should I say less worse than them, on fiscal policy, but they're better than us on regulatory policy, trade policy, monetary policy, rule of law and property rights. Uh, now, again, you know, even those indexes, which I think are relatively honest efforts to do comprehensive measurements, even they're going to be far from perfect. Uh, so so I, you know, I don't want anyone to take those things without a little bit of skepticism and realize the limits of trying to quantify all these things. But I will point out one thing that I think is a good example. In 1970, just as their welfare state was getting going, Sweden was the fourth richest country in the world. They're now down to about number 19. Uh, so So even if you have very free market policy, once you put in a welfare state, you're going to begin to slip. You might still have better policy than France. Congratulations, you'll have better policy than Germany, congratulations, but it's still going to hurt you to have a welfare state.
1: I wonder if you have any thoughts on the claims that we often hear that, look, the model for prosperity, or as they'll often put it, shared prosperity, is the post-war period where we had low inequality, high taxes, um, you know, a, a growing welfare state, growing power of unions, and what we've seen in the last thirty years is, uh, you know, as those things declined, so have our the, the healthy the healthfulness of uh, the U.S. economy.
0: Well, I actually did a blog post on just this topic, where I was looking at the question: Why has the world economy done okay? even though there's been a big increase in the burden of government spending and taxes in the post-World War II era. And it turns out a Spanish academic looked at just this issue, and he measured, in effect, the same thing that you get with the Index of Economic Freedom and the Economic Freedom of the World Index, except he took out fiscal policy. And he found that in the post-World War II era, there was lots of trade liberalization, We moved to better monetary policy, at least after the mistakes of the 60s and the 70s. We got a lot of deregulation in the world economy. And so, yes, fiscal policy went in the wrong direction, but other policies went in the right direction. So on net, even though the fiscal burden of government is worse, national economies, at least in some cases, are more free than they used to be. Uh, Now, there's a couple of other things, of course, that any realistic person's going to throw into the mix. The U.S. was the world economy, 50% of the world economy, after the destruction of World War II. So so we could have a very comfortable uh, standard of living, uh, simply by virtue of the fact that everyone else's capital stock had been destroyed. And so, yes, we could afford high levels of unionization. Now, eventually, that came back to bite us and the you-know-where. Uh, with the steel industry and the auto industry being very much hurt by government putting its finger on the scale in favor of unions and not letting markets decide these things. Uh, but but I think when you look at the comprehensive overall economic policy picture, it's very easy to understand that, yes, government, in terms of fiscal policy, got worse in the post-World War II era, but other policies got better.
1: So... As we kind of wrap this up, I wonder if you could um, say, you know, wh- what really are the best things we could do going forward to improve economic growth? Or to put it another way, what have been the biggest barriers to economic growth that we've had over the last thirty years or so?
0: Well, that's a that's a target-rich environment. Uh, Cato <laughs> actually just had a forum. Uh, where we invited dozens of uh, different experts to pick the one policy they thought would be most helpful to uh, economic, uh, restoring better economic performance. And of course, you know, you ask five economists a question like that, you'll get nine answers. Well, we asked 50. So so you can imagine the, the, the wide array of results that we got. And even if you just ask one, me, Dan Mitchell, I don't know. Is it, is it lowering tax rates? Is it is it uh, deregulating the financial sector? Uh, is it uh, just having open trade? Uh, there are so many answers I could provide, but I don't even know what the right answer is. I'm a fiscal policy economist, so my I'm tempted to say it must be something about reducing, say, the burden of government spending. But the honest answer is I don't know. I just know that we're going to have better growth if we figure out ways to reduce the overall burden of government. Now, maybe when it's all said and done, that might be something on the regulatory front. It might be something on the trade front. Uh, it might be something about uh, reigning in the Fed. Uh, but maybe it is a lower tax rate or a reduction in government spending. Uh, so let's just focus on trying to move policy in the right direction in all areas.
1: My guest today has been Daniel Mitchell. Dan, thanks for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thank you. No wrap-up today. I hope everybody has a good Christmas and New Year's. And with that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time.
0: Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.